Danse. Greetings. Welcome to Indigenous Insights, an evaluation podcast. I am so grateful you're here. I'm Gladys Rowe, your host. What is Indigenous evaluation? Who is doing this work? How are we doing this work? And what have we learned so far? Each episode, I will sit in conversation with Indigenous evaluation practitioners, leaders, researchers, and scholars who are working in, thinking about, and supporting Indigenous evaluation to share how they're doing their work and the challenges and insights they've experienced along the way. It is my hope that this podcast will feel like a deep breath, will feel like a space that you can come and you can listen and learn, where I invite you to grab a cozy beverage and to settle in. Join me and my guests as we open up our evaluation bundles to share the gifts, knowledges, and hopes that we've gathered in our journeys and bring them together in this space. I hope in these stories you will find resonance in the critical contributions that Indigenous evaluation can make as we work towards decolonial futures and strengthening Indigenous resurgence. Danse, I'm so excited to share a space today and to introduce you to Dr. Jolie Sasakamus. She is an Anishinaabe Associate Professor in Educational Psychology and Counseling at the University of Regina. She is an Indigenous methodologist who utilizes community and participatory-based research approaches with First Nation communities and peoples. She shows up with a strength-based, trauma-informed, decolonizing lens, and her research engages Indigenous peoples in defining health and healthy communities. She explores the intergenerational effects of historical trauma and traditional healing methods as protective factors with Indigenous peoples. She utilizes neurodecolonization, contemplative mind-body practices in the promotion of health and well-being. She has received funding from many different national institutes, and she has worked deeply in collaboration with First Nation communities in Saskatchewan. One of the tools that she'll talk about today, she's co-authored the Indigenous Cultural Responsiveness Theory, which is a theoretical framework to direct research that improves the health of Indigenous peoples in Saskatchewan. Good morning, Jolie. So good to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. Great. So before we begin, I was wondering if you just wanted to start with a brief intro to kind of who you are and where you're showing up from today. Sure. My name is Jolie Sasakamoose, and I'm sitting in Treaty 4 in Regina, Saskatchewan right now in the freezing cold weather and snow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I work in Treaty 4 and 6, and I'm also from Ontario and Michigan, so I'm from all over, really. So many places to call home. I definitely experienced that as well. (laughs) Yeah. So I was wondering if we can start with just if you could tell me a little bit about how you came into the work of Indigenous evaluation. Sure. So I started doing evaluation work in 1988, which was I calculated this morning over 30 years ago. I was a freshman in college when my mentor, Eva Menifee, she's Oneida, she brought me on as a counselor in the Michigan Indian Leadership Program, which was a program that brought youth from out of community into Michigan State University for a week in the summer to expose them to culture and college enrichment skills. So my first evaluation experience was just really out of curiosity and doing one evaluation of students and counselors to see what their experience was like. And then each year 
it got more robust and eventually in around 2002 became the topic of my dissertation, which was much more comprehensive evaluation experience. And I would not have probably even gone into a PhD program or been interested in research if it hadn't have been for that experience as a freshman in college and in sort of seeing what research could do. I don't know that I would have defined it as Indigenous evaluation back then, but it certainly was an evaluation of an Indigenous run and founded program. And the evaluation was created by us, but it was certainly Western in that it was a survey, a pretest, post-test design survey. Even though we created the questions for it, it was still modeled on a very Western approach. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of reflecting lately in my conversations and just in my work about the progression of what Indigenous evaluation means and the evolution or progression, I guess, of what it could look like, in particular, as we think about working towards sovereignty or self-determination and how it really has shifted our ability to do work that's important to our communities. Mm -hmm. When you think about Indigenous evaluation now, what does it mean or look like to be an Indigenous evaluation practitioner? So I definitely am a practitioner of Indigenous evaluation, but I don't necessarily define myself that way. I really define myself as a community-based health researcher of which evaluation is often a component of the work that I do. So for me, I try to bring in health interventions and then evaluate those interventions that are happening. But I'm often brought in to other evaluations or research experiences in which I'm asked to lend my expertise in different ways. And so what I see is, so I'm often called in, like I could be called in at the creation stage where I help to co-create the program design as well as the evaluation with community, or I could be called in at the end after data is collected and can I lend an Indigenous lens to it. So for me, I see the skill set that Indigenous evaluators bring as having multiple opportunities to intervene or disrupt or influence the evaluation experience. Wonderful. I really love the way that you frame that is Indigenous evaluation is something, is one of the things, one of the many things that you can bring into spaces. And I saw with your bio and what I know of your work that your way of working really is just showing up in community spaces and offering the knowledge and the skills and the expertise that you can bring. And some of that is Indigenous evaluation work. Yeah, like I've been contacted by communities to come in. One community a few years ago asked me to come in and do a, a SWOT analysis of their family services unit. And SWOT analysis for you and me could just make us cringe when you hear it. And so for me, I thought, well, why would a First Nation community want a SWOT analysis? But when I called back and started having a conversation, I realized just like many of us, they're trained in a Western way and they don't know that there's other options available. So I was able to explain, hey, we still might be able to get at the SWAT, but we could do it in a way that has much more relevancy to who you are as a community and as a people. And so sometimes it's just supporting community or the group to understand that there are different ways that we don't always have to follow that sort of Western approach, but then also being cautious that if funding comes from a certain body, a government body that requires things to be done a certain way, then sometimes I have to enact sort of that two-eyed scene approach, right? You have to do the best of both worlds. You have to meet the needs of both. I know that sometimes people poo-poo quantitative 
a lot, quantitative data, but you know, if you're working in a community that say has to do something with water contamination or something that's more scientific and they need quantitative data, then you need to be able to manage that as well. So for me, it's just more about if we're late in the stage of adding indigenous components, what parts can we do to decolonize at this point in the stage of the game? If at all, sometimes it's looking at data that's already been collected and maybe looking at it from a strengths-based lens instead of a deficit-based lens. I think there's just so many things that an Indigenous evaluator can bring, no matter what stage of the game that they come into the picture. Definitely. Yeah. I was having a conversation the other day about this idea that like we don't know what we don't know and communities don't know what we don't know. And so often bringing in a new perspective or just kind of disrupting that perspective that we always have to come from a Western framework. And also at the same time, I really appreciate you noting that quantitative doesn't have to be something that we just can't work with, but it's the intention behind it and how it informs Indigenous community priorities and supports our own determination. And so when we're talking about something like water quality, like you said, that's such an important topic for Indigenous communities. And so how do we advocate and tell the story and build evidence around something that will support a change in that area. Right, exactly. When you think about how you approach Indigenous evaluation, I'd love to hear, based on your, you know, over 30 years of experience, what could Indigenous evaluation look like from design to implementation to end in an ideal environment? So the closest that I would say that I've gotten to participate would be in a program that I was invited on several years ago with the Provincial Area of Transition Houses, which is PATHS here, and that is our domestic violence shelter system. Someone reached out to me as an Indigenous scholar and asked me if I would help them co-design a domestic violence therapeutic program, because I'm also a counselor by training, and create the evaluation piece. And so for me, that's like just in hindsight of all the things I've done, I think that's probably the closest we that I've gotten. And the reason I say that is because from the moment we started developing, we had what I often refer to as peers or uh, people with the same social determinants of health or people with lived experience, peers with lived experience. So women who had domestic violence experience were co-creating alongside of elders, scholars like myself, Indigenous scholars, trauma-informed therapists, and we all were together creating a what we designed was a 13-week group counseling intervention that was done from a cultural-based perspective. And that happened in three cities here in Saskatchewan on three separate occasions. We actually had nine groups over a two-year period, and then they had to be evaluated. And so those evaluations consisted of quantitative measures, pre-test and post-test, as well as focus groups and interviews at the one year, after year one of the program ended. So it was very comprehensive, but it was also Western and Indigenous. And the reason I say it was very Western as well, because it was funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada. And as much as someone who advocates for strengths-based approaches and strengths-based measures, this funder really wanted to make sure that we had some standard measures of practice, such as scales of anxiety, scales of depression, those types of measures. But at least with my lens, I was able to do two things. I was able to say, okay, if we use these, we will also use strengths-based measures, post-traumatic growth scales, quality of life scales, cultural connectedness scales. 
And then we will speak to that when we do dissemination and when we explain why we've chosen both measures. I think it's as important to say, I'm consciously choosing a deficit-based measure and here's why, rather than to just do it and not explain yourself. At the same time, I think it's as important to find, if we're required to use those deficit-based things, to find something that would also be strengths-based, so quality of life, post-traumatic growth scales, things like that. And then, of course, I don't think quantitative data alone is ever enough, which is why I'm a mixed methods researcher. And really contextualizing within that story is very, very important. And that's where the qualitative components come in and the focus groups. And we even had some arts-based data collection as well. So I think that it was beyond Indigenous in terms of having not Western approaches and Western researchers in it as well, but it was also, I think, decolonized to the extent that we could be, since it was also positioned within the academy. And the other thing I would say is that it also included ceremonies. When we were working with the elders, we got to a point in our experience together where they said, okay, we're ready to kind of develop this program, but we want to go into ceremony and we wanted to ask the ancestors for a name. And so that component happened and we had the name Natawehoan come out of it. When you look at that project, which I will provide you with the website and anyone can go there and look at the dissemination, typically dissemination in a Western framework can be peer-reviewed journal articles that help the faculty or the scholar's career. But this dissemination was really at the community level. So we created a manual that could be locally adapted by any community. We created reports that were at the level of agencies, organizations. Of course, there were peer-reviewed articles that are starting to come out now. But it was really about making sure that the dissemination, that the pieces that come out of it support the women, that we took the findings back to the women before they were reproduced in any way to get their feedback and to ensure that their voice was heard. That was a five-year program as well. And to me, that's the most robust that I've seen It happened. It was well-funded. It had a large team, Western, non- and Indigenous elders. That to me is like a really good example of it's still hybrid Western and Indigenous. I don't know if you'd ever really have just a solid Indigenous evaluation. I don't know if that's possible in this Westernized world that we're in, but certainly the closest I've seen. Wow, that sounds like amazing work. And I look forward to sharing that website with everyone. There's so many pieces in there that I think highlight the ways that values and principles are central to Indigenous evaluation practice. So, for example, you know, you talked about inclusion of people with lived experiences right from the beginning. You talked about knowledge keepers identifying like, okay, now is the time where we need to go into ceremony for this work. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the incorporation of values and principles that are central to your practice and share examples of how those are put into action. Sure. So now I actually have a framework that I operate from. It's called the Cultural Responsiveness Framework. I believe it was around 2015, the First Nations communities of Saskatchewan, and I'm speaking First Nations, not Métis, because Métis weren't included in this. It was the First Nations, the 74 First Nation communities were consulted by the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, which is FSIN, our body here, and they came up with a cultural responsiveness framework. And it was a very tangible document that's public, and it really spoke to ways in which those communities, the First Nations communities of Saskatchewan, wanted things to be taken up. And then they approached myself and Shawnee, Dr. Shawnee Pete, who are two Indigenous scholars, and asked us if we could 
develop it into a theory because they said to us that we know you academics need this and we want you to create this. And so I'd never written a theory before and I was just kind of stunned. Like, what does that mean? It took me a year to really even understand how to write theory and even start to put it into a theoretical model. And then, of course, we had to take it back to the elders and just keep working it out. But since then, it's become like my scaffold for everything. And I'll just share it with you. And again, I can give you the article that it was published in and more information if you want. But what I really like about the, I call it a scaffold because it really just sort of sits there and you can position all your stuff around it. It has three strategic directions and I use this in every single thing I do. So I'm also a counselor by training. I use it in my one-on-one therapy sessions. I use it if I'm creating an evaluation. I use it if I'm writing a grant. It's the way I think about everything. And those three strategic directions are first to restore indigenous community-based health and wellness systems. And so if you're not necessarily in health and wellness, that can really be very high level. Just restore indigenous practices, indigenous languages, just restore, like even just use the word restore is a scaffold enough. The second one is to establish that middle ground or what Willie Ermine, an elder from Sturgeon Lake talks about is that ethical space of engagement, often between Western and mainstream and indigenous institutions, worldviews, systems. Sometimes creating that middle ground is often referred to as a sacred space because that might be where ceremony happens. It might be where the two entities come together to start out in a good way, always positioning the community's way of knowing first. So if it's a Christian prayer, then it's a Christian prayer. If it's a sweat lodge, it's a sweat lodge. That community will determine how it wants to move forward to establish that middle ground. And then that third strategic direction is transforming service delivery to be culturally responsive. Within those three strategic directions, we have four protective mechanisms, which I just love. And it's that one is community specific, locally adapted. So what I love about this model is you can locally adapt it to any community because it's built right in that you will position yourself according to the community, the community's priorities, the community's needs, the community's spirituality. That second component is that it's spiritually grounded. So again, like positioning it around the community's approach to spirituality Then the other two components of it are that it's trauma-informed and strengths-based. And so those four components sort of serve as those protective mechanisms around those three strategic directions. And we can use it for anything. I use it for everything. And I love it because it's so simple. And I've actually made a little visual model. I have not taken that visual model because of COVID back to the elders yet, but I plan to take that back and publish it as soon as we get permission to. Wow. I love the idea of the scaffolding too, and how it just is a starting point for all of the work that you do. Everything. Yeah. When you think about putting this into practice, do you have some examples? So you're sharing so many examples already, but do you have an example of how you have placed this into practice recently? Yeah, I have dozens of them. So first of all, the Natoway one, the one I mentioned with you with intimate partner violence was definitely on the forefront of being one of the first. So again, that restored Indigenous cultural practices by bringing them to the women who were in the intimate partner survivor 13-week groups. It was trauma-informed because we had trauma-informed therapists. It was strengths-based as much as, again, we did use some deficit-based measures, but the program itself was strengths-based. We had that middle ground because we also had non-Indigenous 
Indigenous people. And we often had to come into that middle ground space and really hash out some things. And it wasn't always easy. And even in the dissemination phase, it's been a little challenging. I actually broke free a little bit from the team because I wanted a very Indigenous perspective of the findings. And I wasn't necessarily getting that with some of the quantitative people. So I just pointed that out. And then also transforming service delivery. So really transforming that service delivery that took into consideration what a woman who's experienced intimate partner violence is going to go through and how we support her. So we provided transportation, we provided babysitting if they or child minding if they had children there, we provided food. And the other thing that I have adapted is I like finding Western models that work for us. So I also have discovered and been asked to use by the health authority many times, the learning health system, which is just a really nice way of saying learn as you go, which is what we do as indigenous people. And that learning health system approach allows us as soon as we know there's an issue and we see that in the data coming out, we make the change immediately instead of waiting till the end of the program and the findings to emerge. And then we make a recommendation. We take that information up right away. So in the case of the Natawehu and women's groups, we didn't provide a meal on the first pilot. And we heard about that from the women that at the time that it was being offered, it was very difficult to make dinner and to get there on time. So we started to offer a meal. Now, if you think about that, that seems like it's not a big deal. But when you have three groups in three cities over three times, that's a significant expense, right? So that's thousands of dollars that you're talking about that weren't necessarily built in at the beginning, but still very important to make those adaptations as you go. And that's where that scaffold came in. And the other piece of that, that's not necessarily in the scaffold, but is that I use in, I create a lot of models of care. So in my models of care, this one was for intimate partner violence. I've created one for vaccine uptake. I've created one for HIV and hepatitis C. I always try to use that peer with lived experience because a peer with lived experience and an elder or a knowledge keeper or someone who knows the culture. And then maybe if there needs to be another person, your therapist, your physician, whatever that other person is, it's like a trifecta. It really has demonstrated to me over time that it's that experience together that has made a difference. That peer often in our communities, or if I have diabetes and I'm scared or ashamed, but my person from my community has it and they're there to help and support is a lot more helpful than some westernized position coming in like a therapist or a doctor. That peer with lived experience is crucial in a lot of the work that I do. And I think when it comes to even doing the evaluations, running the focus groups, a lot of times people on my team, they want to run the focus groups, but I often say like who should be running them are the people from the community. And then that builds their capacity. So what I always try to do is make sure that whatever study we're doing or whatever research we're doing, we're also building the capacity of the people alongside us so that their skills are increased as we move forward. Wow. Thank you for that many handfuls of so many examples there. One of the things that you share kind of leads into something else that I've been thinking about. And so you, you talked about the ability to be responsive and to be flexible and to implement learning into action immediately. And I've been really thinking about like how Indigenous evaluation or learning work, does it create impact? Does our work matter? And in what ways does it matter? And it sounds like the ability to be responsive has been really impactful in your work. 
it's interesting. I'm asked to review a lot of peer-reviewed articles or even to look at education curriculums and programs and even those done by our own people. And I have one that's in front of me now. I won't give too much detail, but there's a curriculum in front of me that says that it's for the community and by the community, but I can't see where engagement was done. I can't, I'm like looking through the documents and I'm like, where did you engage? Who did you engage? Like what people on your team were indigenous? Cause that's not really clearly defined. Like, I think that be, being someone who is an indigenous evaluator or has that lens, you can really start to see the gaps really clearly where other people might not be trained to see that. And so where, if you present that to a bunch of non-Indigenous people, they're going to be like, oh, this is a great curriculum. It's awesome. It's amazing. But if you really have that lens on what it takes, like I know what the elders ask of us because I've been doing this for 30 years. They want to be sure that they're not just called in to open a prayer and leave. There has to be some linkage back and community-centered priorities are super important. And I think that Where I see a lot of the rub is with allies and non-Indigenous people who really have amazing intentions taking up this work without proper engagement and consultation and then creating programs and systems and things for us that we have no interest in because we didn't have the creation or the co-creation. It wasn't based on our priorities. And so sometimes I get challenged by white people or non-Indigenous people who say, why is this happening when over here, this is a bigger issue? And it's like, well, because right here is what is going on in the community. Why would they care about X if they can't feed their kids? Why would they care about your issue if they don't have jobs? So I think that sometimes our lenses are very different. And so being able to understand if proper consultation was done, if the right people were asked the right questions is also important. And then also knowing like who your community actually is. So I'll just give an example of that. I was many years ago asked to work with a group of women in a community who had been abused in many, many ways, sexually in lots of ways. And they wanted to tell their story and chief and council did not. And so I was challenged, like, you can't do this research because chief and council said no. And I'm like, but chief and council is not my community here. It's these women. And so I was very clear about this is my community. And I dare anyone to tell anybody that you can't go in to a group of women and tell their story. So I think it's also just being able to understand who your community actually is, because it's not always at the level of chiefs and councils, right? It's not always there. And I think recently in my university, we have to go through ethics approval and someone on the ethics board came back and said, well, where's the BCR? And it's like, what do you know about BCRs? BCRs come at the level of the governance of the First Nation. If the First Nation wants the BCR, they'll ask for it, but it's not for my white institution to come back and tell me to get a BCR. So it's being able to navigate those pretty sticky situations and also to be strong enough to take it back to the non-Indigenous side and say, no, 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 this is not how it's going to happen. It has to happen this way. And it can often put us in challenging situations. However, I think after 30 some years, I've been able to navigate it enough to know where those limits are and when to back off and when to push. Wow. Yeah, so much. I'm hearing a lot about like relationship in what you just shared with me from your experiences, from the example of the curriculum and telling the story of the development of something is providing the groundwork for understanding the relationships that have come into being to develop something, right? So 
engagement and collaboration and consultation. Tell me about the relationships that have created this space. And then thinking also about institutions, as people get excited to do work of decolonization, reconciliation, Indigenous community work, (laughs) there's a lot of danger. And I'm laughing, but it's just, it's something that I see across so many different institutions. There's these checklists that are then created about how do you engage community in a good way without actually having community in mind, I think. (laughs) And so I love that example of the BCR and the institution saying like, oh, well, where is this? And you really being able to push back and saying like, what would the purpose of that be? And actually bringing forward the relationships and defining community from the perspective of the work that you're actually doing. So (laughs) I'm just in awe listening to all of your stories, Julie. Uh, (laughs) So grateful to spend this Monday morning with you. Thank you. I want to ask about something that I've read of yours and I know is out there publicly available and it's this data contemplation tool. So another really deep offering for Indigenous researchers and Indigenous evaluators. I'm wondering if you could talk about that tool a little bit. Sure. So that was co-created with my former, when I say former because she's now graduated PhD student, Carrie LaValle, when she did her dissertation on working with elders an addiction recovery. And so it really came out of her work with them and our discussions about her ways of handling the data as it was coming out. And one of the things that we noticed is that there's a lot more coming out on Indigenous methodologies and ways to collect data. But to our knowledge at the time, there was only one other article well, ours wasn't even published then. There was only one article on data analysis, and it was just more of an approach. And so we made this offering on the data analysis side after the data is collected and you're contemplating it and you're thinking about it. And it's not just non-Indigenous researchers, it's for all of us, because I think that whenever we work with Indigenous communities, whether it's our own or new ones, there's always, at least from everyone I've ever worked with, you're touched by the work. You're touched by the people, by the culture by the ceremonies, by the data coming out. It's often moving. It's attached to sometimes very difficult stories. And so we have to look at our positionality in that. And what does that mean? Like I am a Western researcher, even though I am First Nations. And so I have to think about my role in that data, because the way the Western Academy teaches us to analyze data is to code and theme and put it into these nice little silos and basically rip it apart from the story from which it came. And Harry and I just don't like that kind of data. Maggie Kovach speaks to like, don't decontextualize the data. Like, what's the point of getting our story and then just coding and theming it all the time back into some Western thing? So it was really about being able to keep the story, but also what is our role within it? Because really as researchers, we don't get asked how we feel about things. And it's not to take the space away at all or to position the researcher's experience first and foremost, but it's to give the researcher a tool to understand where they sit within the data. Is their privilege in the way? Maybe they're from that community and that's in the way. Maybe it's not in the way. Maybe they bring something beautiful to the table, but it's just to be able to have that moment of reflective reflection about it to take that time. Often as researchers, once the data is collected, we do the analysis, we run on and we don't really reflect in that data. We don't think about it. We don't sit in it. And so this is also an opportunity to take it back to the community partners or the 
peers or whoever your people are that you're working with and ask them what their thoughts are on the data. And they often will see things, gaps, and then point them out. And it's an opportunity to go back and forth over the data. I did this at my dissertation. I was really, which was funny because it was way before like this even came out. I mean, this was 20 years ago. I, I took my dissertation back to the students who had told their stories. I didn't think they would give a crap about reading my dissertation. And they sat in my living room and each one, they were just so touched by the stories and they read it word for word. And back then I changed their names and gave them pseudonyms. I don't do that as much anymore, but just fascinating to see these young people really interested in my dissertation, like actually reading it because the story was intact. And so I feel like that's what RR is what we call it. It's just a tool that gives us something to do with the data other than just theme and code. And what I really love about RR is it can be used with any data set. So it could be used with quantitative, it could be used with qualitative. It's just a robust tool that can show the connections from the information that you've gathered, really. That's so beautiful. Again, it's about relationship, right? It's what relationship have you built with or what relationships are you bringing into the work that you do? In my dissertation, I use poetry as a mechanism to reflect a relationship with the stories that I gathered. So it's such an important action to be attentive to, and it transfers deeply into the evaluation work that we do as well, I think. Relationships are probably the most important. And I work with a lot of communities, but I also try not to work with a lot of communities, especially more so now, because when you work with a community, they want your presence there and they want you to spend time with them. And, you know, I'm a widowed mom living in the city now. And for me, it's if I commit to working with 10 communities, that's 10 locations I actually need to try to be in. And so I really try to narrow my communities down a little bit. And then the other thing I often tell non-Indigenous researchers, especially because fortunately or unfortunately, there tends to be a little bit, there's quite a bit of grant money for Indigenous work. And a lot of non-Indigenous scholars want to apply for that and they want to work with the community. But I often say like, when you start working with a community, you should think about that as a lifelong commitment. And they laugh the grant's only five years. Why would I do this for life? And it's like, because you make relationships with people. And often the work that I do might start out at this level, but then after we've done, you know, a year grant together, we're like, no, Jolie, we want to look at this, or we want to go into this direction, or we, now we've done HIV, Hep C, we want to move into diabetes in this health center. Okay. So sometimes people think like, how are you a researcher in HIV, Hep C, diabetes? Like, how do you do all of that? And it's because that's what the community has asked. The community want these things. So I go with the flow of the community. Yes, I have to learn a whole new literature set and a whole new disease. And it's a lot of work for me, but it's because I stay with the same communities and I try to grow and go with them. And so I think that non-Indigenous people don't go into it with that mindset that this can and should be a lifelong relationship. When I went into Muskaugan to do work with them a few years ago, one of the first community engagement sessions, I met this young First Nation student and ended up putting him and another one on my research team. They ended up getting their bachelor's degree. Then one of them became a teacher. I'm now a reference for him. My relationships with these people go on and on and on. It's a two-way thing. I support them, they support me. And I just wish more people 
would think about it like that. Like you just don't go in five years in and out. It is a long-term relationship that we should consider establishing and keeping. Absolutely. And I really like your point about being intentional about the amount of communities that you're working with, because you need to show up, you need to be in the space, you need to be meaningfully engaging in a consistent way. And I I really love the stories that you shared there about the importance of relationship as an Indigenous researcher and evaluator. When you're thinking about your work right now, is there something that in Indigenous evaluation that is really exciting for you right now? Yes, I've just, well, not just, I've recently been funded in the last couple of years to do maternal care work. So traditional birthing and parenting. And that was, again, most of the things I do are very organic and how they happen. But during COVID, a team of matriarchs here in the Treaty 4 area started taking care of elders and those who were isolated due to health conditions. And then after about a year of that, one of our women on the ground became pregnant and then COVID was still pretty active. And so she needed some unique care and support and she was a younger pregnant woman. And so we just started taking care of her. And with COVID, you know how like when COVID hit, a lot of things went online that we maybe wouldn't have put online culturally before. And so I was able to attend this workshop with a doula from really close to my home community in Ontario. And she was talking about birth as a ceremony and some of those teachings that I thought I'd had really good teachings around, but she gave me some new ones and they were transformative. Just in that couple hours with her, they were transformative. And I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. And so of course I go back to my matriarch team and I say, we should make what we're doing with Brianna bigger and support more women. (laughs) So I wrote a grant, we got funded And so now I'm doing maternal care and traditional birthing and parenting, and it is exciting. And I've just established two new community partners that will be, there were some hurdles with our program being in a Western institution that I wasn't comfortable with. So I decided with my team to move it to community because I think that's the more appropriate space and location. But I'm really excited about, actually last week we met and we decided to change the frame just a little bit to restoration of the family because I'm still getting invited to participate in so many HIV and hepatitis C and mental health and all these other things, but it's hard to be scattered across subject areas. So I'm just tying everything into family restoration because under family restoration and mental health addictions, HIV, all that stuff can come into play, but still focusing on the moms. And I just want to say a piece about that because I was asked to co-evaluate the Indigenous Birth Worker Support Program here, which was piloted in Saskatoon. And again, I was brought in at the end, the data was already collected. I didn't co-design the program. I didn't even meet the women who were the IBSWs. I just saw the data. And my influence on the report was moderate. I would say that I added some components for sure, helped with the Indigenous lens a bit. But I wanted to be much stronger in the front end about birthing policies and practices and why we're in the situation we're in. So birth evacuation policies, all that stuff. But I had to really toe the line. I put it in, it got pulled out. And I realized like, I'm not going to get things like that in at the government level, but I ensured that I could then take that stance and I'll write my own article on it. 
And that's kind of what happened with the Nate Tawain data as well. Like I wanted to take a much harder stance on some of these government policies and how they've influenced us. And sometimes like other researchers don't, I don't know if they're afraid. I don't know what it is. They don't want to piss off the government, but like, that's our job, right? Like that's our job is to tell the story of how we got where we are. I'm a strengths-based researcher, but I'm certainly not going to not indicate the context of which we come from. And so for me, like that's as much of important work as just finding out the findings. It's letting people know we're in this situation because of your policies, because of this behavior, because of residential schools, because of foster care. Like this is where we're at. So many people just want to like tell the story from the moment of the evaluate the program and the evaluation and not the context from which we came. So I just think that those are important pieces that I'm hoping to bring to this birthing work that I'm doing. Beautiful. And I have to tell you that our experiences overlap in this way as well. That was my dissertation. I sat with Indigenous full spectrum birth keepers and asked them to share stories about how they incorporate their traditional practices and how they support people in their reproductive health Oh my gosh, I'll have to read your dissertation. I will share it to you. And so their stories, their 13 stories sit in a bundle as an appendix in my dissertation because it had to be done in in a way that satisfied the academy. But yeah, I will definitely share that with you as well. And it's so important to make sure that we're using the space that we have to advocate. And so that things like that don't, whether they are included, whether we have the power to have the actual context included in the final evaluation report or not, not losing it, not dropping it, but making sure that it is there because we need to leave these trails so that things will change. Absolutely. And I think that many people, I train a lot of healthcare providers. I train, and I recently, like in the last year, when I started to see the impact of my training on seasoned health professionals, I started to get in at the med school level because the seasoned professionals are like, oh, I wish I would have had this in med school. And it's like, well, let's get it into the med schools then. Because I don't think people, especially because I work in health, you see physicians often don't have the context of why our people are plagued with certain illnesses. And a lot of doctors don't even know about the adverse childhood experiences study, which is basically a study that says if you have these certain kinds of traumas in your childhood, you'll likely manifest in these chronic diseases. If doctors don't know this linkage, then how are they going to understand these situations that are going on? And then there's a lot of judgment. And so now you're a healthcare provider that's judging us because you're seeing this chronic condition or you're seeing addictions or you're seeing whatever it is you're seeing, but you don't know how we got here. And a lot of doctors come from other countries. So they come from other countries. They don't know our history. And then they judge us. And then they treat us badly at point of care. So my goal is to really offer like that history and that context, but also with ways to get us to a better place. Because those harsh judgments and my husband passed away because of racism in the healthcare system. I'll be very transparent about that. I spoke with the doctor who I believe had a hand in what happened to him. And I confronted him gently and harshly about had your team behaved in this way, it wouldn't have turned him off at the door. But there was that racism that he interfaced with. A lot of men are hard enough to get to the doctor, but you know when you turn them off because of your attitudes and behavior, that's not getting us anywhere. And so really just having an understanding that we're all accountable from this point forward 
for all that history. We have a shared history and then we have to have a shared understanding. And it's no excuse just because you're a medical doctor or you don't come from this country. There's no excuse for not understanding your patients and where they are and where they come from. And that's kind of why I work in health so much because I feel like that's really where I see so much preventable stuff going on that if we could just get in a little earlier, we would have less people dying, including people like my own husband. So I'm I'm very passionate about it. And I will probably till the day I die, commit to doing this work so that, you know what, we can prevent one family from dying from something preventable because of somebody being rude at the doctor's office or whatever the issue is, just because they don't understand the context. Powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I want to go back to the power of evaluation, but I'm hearing so much in your story, just the power of showing up in spaces in a good way and bringing all of your wisdom and your skills and your connections and your networks to transform health and wellness for communities. And so evaluation is one small piece of that, but I think it's also a powerful piece when we can make sure that people who are making policies, making funding decisions, creating education system curriculum who are training the doctors can see the impact that programs, that community priorities are having towards health and wellness. So I think that it's all so deeply connected there. Mm -hmm. It's all connected. And one of the things, like I said, I could get brought in at the early stages. It could be my own study, or I could be asked to evaluate data post. But the things that I think I keep in common with Nate when I gave you the example of how we actually went into ceremony and got the name of the program, that was deeply embedded in the culture. What I did with the IBSW evaluation, there was no culture there. It was like post, I just looked at the data after. However, my process is still cultural. I pray and smudge before I write a grant or I do an evaluation or whatever it is, I bring in my culture around that so that even if it's missing at one end, I've brought it in at another. And so I know that my process is comprehensive, that I've asked the proper questions. And those questions for me are the ones in my culture responsiveness framework. Does this restore First Nations health and wellness? Is there a middle ground here for conversation between two worldviews? And is there a transformation of service delivery? So those are the questions that I ask as I mull through. Is it strengths-based? Is it trauma-informed? Is it locally, culturally grounded, spiritually grounded? Those kinds of questions. That's the framework that I operate from. And so even if it wasn't built on that, those are still the questions that I use in my own spiritual practice to ensure that alignment is still there. And if it's not, then I identify the gaps. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that back full circle to the scaffolding that you, (laughs) that informs everything that you do. Coming close to the end of our time together. And I wanted to make sure to ask if you have any insights that you'd like to share with emerging Indigenous evaluators or any hopes or words of wisdom that you'd like to leave the listeners with. Yeah, I think some of the things I've learned along the way here in the area that I'm in, we actually don't get a lot of Indigenous scholars. We definitely have a lot of non-Indigenous scholars interested in the work, and I have some Indigenous scholars. But when I have a PhD or a master's student doing a thesis or a study, what I've noticed along the decade that I've been at this institution is that because I teach uh, intro to research, so I often will use Maggie Kovacs' Indigenous Methodologies book alongside that Western text. 
And because Maggie's also from Saskatchewan, it really resonates with everyone, not just Indigenous students. It really resonates with all students in the class. And what I've noticed is that my students who are non-Indigenous, once they start to learn Indigenous methods, want to use that in their studies as well. But not at the appropriation way, right? Not like appropriating something, but really just using those holistic ways of knowing those relationships, the check-ins, the reflexivity, all of those pieces and parts because it just works better. And so I often share that when I teach, especially like when I do my webinars with health providers, I often say like, our culture, it's not to say that our culture is better than anyone else's, but our culture is very holistic and is really better for everyone. And it will take us all a little bit further. And the example I often give is we have a First Nations hospital near here, a couple hours away, and non-Native people who attend that hospital seem to have better outcomes than other hospitals. And I think that's because of the mental, emotional, spiritual, physical connection that we look at, that whole person, that whole spirit. And so I just find it interesting that our ways often work really, really well in research for non-Indigenous peoples. And I'm not talking about appropriating here. I'm just talking about holistically looking at it that way. So I think that if more people started to take up this work, it would just be better all around. So true. So true. I am so grateful, like I said, Jolie, to spend this Monday morning with you. I feel like I have a lot to digest, and I know that listeners are going to be super excited about this episode. So I want to thank you deeply for sharing this space with me and for offering some of the insights that you gathered over your journey in this work. And yeah, I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you so much. Thank you.